Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study This brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 60, the book of Matthew, chapter 17. You ever thought very much about the Transfiguration? Kind of a big event in the Bible, isn't it? What does it mean? You know, we opened Matthew chapter 17 last week, actually a couple weeks ago, which begins with one of the landmark occurrences in Yeshua's short ministry on earth, that transfig uh, the transfiguration. And, and, and I promise that we try to untangle the meaning of it, and we're going to do that shortly. Now this is going to get a little long-winded because there is so much disagreement and variation in what are the most common church doctrines about the Transfiguration. So we're going to have to kind of recalibrate our minds a bit to get a better understanding. First of all, however, let's reread the narrative about it. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 17, and then after we read that, don't put them down because we're going to read a little bit more in a couple of other books. Matthew 17, we're going to read the first 13 verses. Matthew 17, starting with verse 1. Six days later, Yeshua took Kepha, Yaakov, and his brother Yochanan and led them up a high mountain privately. And as they watched, he began to change form. His face shone like the sun, his clothing became as white as light. Then they looked and they saw Moshe and Eliyahu, Moses and Elijah, speaking with him. Kepha, Peter, said to Yeshua, It's good that we're here, Lord. I'll put up three shelters if you want, one for you, one for Moshe, one for Eliyahu. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the Talmudim, his disciples, heard this, they were so frightened, they fell face down on the ground. But Yeshua came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. So they opened their eyes, looked up, and saw only Yeshua by himself. As they came down the mountain, Yeshua ordered them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Talmudim asked him, Then why do the Torah teachers say that Eliyahu, Elijah, must come first? And he answered, Well, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. On the other hand, I tell you that Elijah has already come. And people did not recognize him, but did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man, too, is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. Now, in order to get as much information as is available about this first event, we need to know what the other gospel accounts said about it. So, turn to Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Not very far, just a few pages. 
easy to find. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 2 through, uh, 2 through 13. Six days later, Yeshua took Kepha, Yaakov, and Yochanan and led them up a high mountain privately. And as they watched, he began to change form, and his clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could possibly bleach them. Then they saw Eliyahu and Moshe speaking with Yeshua. And Kepha said to Yeshua, It's good that we're here, Rabbi. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moshe, and one for Eliyahu. Now he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud enveloped them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Yeshua. And as they came down the mountain, he warned them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, but they kept ask, uh, continued asking each other, What is this rising from the dead? And they saw, also asked him, well, Why do the Torah teachers say that Elijah has to come first? Elijah will indeed come first, he answered, and he will restore everything nevertheless. Why is it written in the Tanakh that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? There's more to it. I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as the Tanakh says about him. Finally, let's go to Luke's Gospel. Just a few more pages over again. Chapter 9. We're just going to read 28 through 36. Chapter 9. 28 through 36. Luke chapter 9. About a week after Yeshua said these things, he took Kepha, Yochanan, and Yaakov with him and went up the hill country to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothing became gleaming white. And suddenly there were two men talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glorious splendor, he spoke of his exodus, which he was soon to accomplish in Jerusalem. Kepha and those with him had been sound asleep. But on becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving, uh, Yeshua, as men were leaving Yeshua, Kepha said to him, not knowing what he was saying, Oh, it's good that we're here, Rabbi. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moshe, one for Eliyahu. And as he spoke, a cloud came and enveloped them. They were frightened as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice spoke, Yeshua was alone once more. They kept quiet. At that time, they told no one anything of what they had seen. So, even though we do find some differences between the three synoptic gospel accounts, I think we can owe those differences to essentially two things. First, none of the gospel writers were eyewitnesses. So they had to get their information either from one of the three eyewitnesses, Peter, James, or James' brother John, or more likely, it came from written accounts of unnamed others. Now, it may also be that the written accounts are even the verbal accounts from one or another of the three eyewitnesses was slightly different. Second, 
each of the gospel writers has constructed this transfiguration story based on their personal perspective of its meaning. And that according to their first century minds. And therefore what details to include, also what not to include, that would resonate best with their particular intended audience. Now Mark and Matthew agree, for instance, that the transfiguration happened six days after the previous events that concluded chapter 16. But Luke says it was about eight days later. So whatever the sources these Gospel writers were using, Luke's seems to have been different from Mark's and Matthew's, and so Luke's source even contained a little bit of uncertainty about how many days we're talking about. The complete Jewish Bible deals with this uncertainty by saying about a week, but the Greek specifically says okto, which is eight. Now what we must notice in all of these accounts, there is no recorded comment made by Yeshua or any of the three disciples that were present that explains the meaning behind this breathtaking event. Nor do any of the Gospel accounts, any of the writers, attempt to arrive at a conclusion on their own about it. The story is, in all three accounts, simply told and left hanging, leaving us all to scratch our heads and wonder about just what we're to take from it. And clearly there had to be an intended meaning in it. Yet there is one thing embedded in the story that might have something to do with the explanation for the transfiguration. It's when the Father speaks from the cloud that enveloped the three men, and he says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where have we heard similar words before? Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Yeshua came up from the Galilee, from the Galilee to the Jordan to be immersed by John. But Yochanan, John, tried to stop him. You are coming to me, I ought to be immersed by you. However, Yeshua answered him, let it be this way now because we should do everything righteousness requires. Then Yochanan led him. And as soon as Yeshua had been immersed, he came up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God coming down upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. I am well pleased with him. So one has to ask, what's the point what might the point be of God making this pronouncement again? One he's already made to John the Baptist and to Yeshua and very probably to several onlookers. The predominant thought among Bible commentators is that for some reason the Father wanted those three disciples to personally witness 
a sort of reenactment of this important pronouncement that was originally made in the Jordan River several months earlier. However, for me, that just doesn't satisfy. Because the disciples already knew of John the the Immerser and all that had happened with him, including especially his reluctant immersing of Jesus. And therefore, no doubt, they also knew those words that Yeshua was, was God's son. Even if the significance of those words seemed to keep eluding them. So if that's not what this pronouncement was about, what's the alternative explanation? And besides, if it was only to repeat it in front of those three particular disciples, why only three, not all twelve? But even more, if once again pronouncing Jesus as God's Son was the point, Why did Elijah and Moses have to be there? Could it be that perhaps it was not so much meant as a pronouncement for the disciples to witness as it was for the benefit of the two men that appeared with Yeshua, Moses and Elijah? Here's why I think this just might make more sense. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, we read Paul saying this in his interpretation of a special act of Messiah Yeshua not long after his resurrection. Don't go there, I'll just read it to you. In Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, it says, This is why it says, After he went up into the heights, He led captivity captive, and He gave gifts to mankind. Now this phrase, He went up, what can it mean if not that He first went down into the lower parts, that is, of the earth? The one who went down is Himself the one who also went up far above all of heaven in order to fulfill all things. Now a passage from the book of Acts is usually added to the one I just quoted that has created the prevalent church doctrine that Jesus descended into hell, where He descended into Hades for a time. I'm going to quote this passage from the NAS Bible version because it's the most literal from the Greek. In Acts 2.27 it says, Because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Now I've stated in other Bible book studies that these two perplexing passages are not trying to say that Yeshua descended into Hades. It's not possible. Because Hades was the mythological Greco-Roman underworld of the dead. Such a concept as Hades had no place in Jewish culture or in the Bible, or therefore in Christ's thoughts. But what did exist in the Jewish culture was the concept of Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was said to be a chamber 
beneath the earth where the souls of the righteous Hebrew dead went and were held safely in a, in a waiting room, so to speak, until Yeshua the Messiah came, died on the cross to atone for their sins, and then they could be released from their captivity to go to heaven. Now this captivity within the bosom of Abraham was a more or less pleasant captivity because it was meant for the safekeeping of their souls, meaning Satan and his demons had no access to them. Therefore, when Yeshua descended, it was to Abraham's bosom, not to Hades, where he appeared in person to announce himself and as a result to also announce the end of those captives' captivity. This, by the way, is not some original idea of mine. Wish it was. There are even paintings of this event created centuries ago to depict it. Therefore, I wonder if perhaps Yeshua's appearance with Moses and Elijah was for a similar reason. Elijah for certain had not been living in Abraham's bosom. And the death of Moses was very mysterious. Because Deuteronomy 14 seems to say that God buried Moses so nobody knows where his grave is. No matter, both Elijah and Moses had to have their sins atoned for just as with all humans. Therefore, even though they died under a certain kind of righteousness, they too had to wait for the Messiah to come and die in order for the complete atonement of their sins to happen. And although Yeshua has yet to die in the order of things, He has made it known that His death is imminent. And so, the three men appear together, whereby Yeshua makes Himself known to them as their Messiah, their Savior. And probably also explains to Moses and Elijah what's about to transpire. After all, Moses and Elijah were not divine, and despite what, wherever they've been residing or in whatever form they had assumed over all those centuries, they would not have had the knowledge of the future that God alone holds. See, I think there's also another element to this appearance of Moses and Elijah with Yeshua, and I want to emphasize that since the Bible makes no effort to explain the reason for all this, my conclusion must fall within the realm of opinion and speculation. Over and against what Davies and Allison conclude about it, which is that it is to show that Jesus replaced Moses. That's what they say. And then all the ramifications that come with that, well, I see it as nearly the opposite. The common expression used among Jews, and Yeshua as well in that day, to mean the entire Hebrew Bible was the Torah and the Prophets. This was because the third section of the three Hebrew-defined 
divisions of the Old Testament, called the writings, was viewed as somewhat secondary to the Torah and the prophets. Moses is the epitome. He is the primary author of the Torah, while Elijah is the chief of the prophets. Even though, oddly enough, there is no mention of him having written Scripture as did the other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But of course, what sets Elijah apart is that Elijah went to God's holy mountain, Mount Sinai, and had direct conversation with God, who was present there just as he was with Moses. And just as famously, God brought Elijah to heaven without him experiencing death. So, in pulling this all together, Moses and Elijah can be said to represent the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and all that it meant. And that Yeshua is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament portended, and all that His advent as God on earth meant. The only sliver of an implication of a hierarchy among those three within this story of the Transfiguration is of Yeshua's glowing face and clothing. But nothing and no one in this event or in its aftermath even says that. For certain, there is no implication of the new replacing the old in the narrative of the Transfiguration. It just isn't there. The three men simply appeared together and they talked. But the topic of what they said isn't even recorded. Therefore, because of our 21st century vantage point of hindsight, the appearance of the three together can only mean that they, these, rep, these three represent the various stages of God's plan of redemption and that each have played the most prominent of roles in its pro progress and in its realization. From God's perspective, these three are intimately connected. Elijah represents the prophets, Moses the Torah, Yeshua their fulfillment. They have worked together in various eras to come to this glorious moment when all that the Torah and the prophets pointed towards, redemption of mankind through God's Son, it's about to happen. Finally, it's about to happen. By means of Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross. Now verse 4. It has more to it than a casual reading might suggest. In it, the always excitable Peter, upon viewing this scene, says, Man, I got a great idea. Let's build three shelters, one for each of you. Now, the complete Jewish Bible uses the term shelters, which I think is misleading, while other English Bibles say tabernacles or booths. This is better. Yet, this is another statement in this story of the Transfiguration in which there is no explanation 
for why Peter would even suggest such a thing. The nearly universal take of Christian Bible commentators is that Peter expected that the three would stay there for a time. And so erecting temporary shelters for them to stay in sounded like a pretty good idea. However, that conclusion seems most improbable to me. Rather, I think this points to something else entirely. Mark 9.6 indicates that Peter's comment had it all wrong. And yet, as you see in the complete Jewish Bible, this verse is given to us in parentheses as an indicator. When you see that in a Bible, it's an indicator that this statement is highly doubted as authentic by many Bible scholars because it seems to be more in the form of a gloss added by some later Christian editor rather than the actual opinion of Mark. Now this is a little technical, but it's important, it's really important for understanding the Gospel. So do I got your eyes and ears right now? I need them. Follow me, please. We must notice that any time in any of the Gospels we run across words that seek to interpret what a recorded scene meant. Now this is as opposed to just explaining what happened or adding some background facts or quoting those who were directly involved. Those words are the Gospel writer's personal conclusion about it. Or in some cases, likely some later editor's conclusion. That is, when we read the New Testament carefully, we find that the Gospel writers were normally very economical and cautious when it came to offering their own opinions. Opinions, which is what verse 6 amounts to. It's an opinion from someone that wasn't present at the event. So when we see a statement in a Gospel account that comes not from one of the Bible characters, but rather it is self-evident that it represents a conclusion from the author, and when at times that statement rises to the level of creating a doctrine, we have to proceed with caution. Even when we sign a level of inspiration to the Gospel writers themselves, nonetheless, they were writing as historians and journalists. They weren't spiritual leaders. They weren't in the business of creating new doctrines. Therefore, we must not take it that way. Luke puts forth a similar opinion about the matter of building the shelters, as does Mark. Luke says it this way, as the men were leaving, Kepha said to him, not knowing what he was saying, It's good that you're here, Rabbi. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moshe, one for Eliyahu. Notice that in response to the building of the three shelters, the statement of not knowing what he, what Peter was saying. This is Luke's opinion on the matter. Peter isn't rebuked. He's not corrected by the other disciples or by Jesus. 
It's Luke that questions Peter's understanding of what, what's going on. Now, I'm calling your attention to this because, as I said in, our, in the, the last lesson we had, we absolutely must consider the beliefs of the Jewish culture of the first century and what the Tanakh, the Old Testament, teaches in order for us to properly understand what's going on in these New Testament books and how the Jewish people of that era would have understood it. See, now the Hebrew Bible strongly hints, and the Jewish culture believed, that the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, whereby the building of temporary shelters, Sukkot, is commanded by God, it's directly connected to the end times. And as I've already explained in past lessons about Matthew, it was taken for granted that Elijah would return in the end times when the Messiah appeared. And among some substantial segment of Jewish society, and we actually read about this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was believed that Moses would return as well. So according to what Peter, as part of that Jewish culture, thought this astounding appearance of Moses and Elijah along with Yeshua as the Messiah meant for him, it verified that this was indeed the end times that was, as expected, connected with the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I think Peter was right. I think Peter was right. It's only that his understanding of the timing was wrong. Now, this might be a good opportunity to do a teaching on the prophetic instruction contained within the seven biblical feasts. However, I'm going to resist. I'm only going to explain briefly as it pertains to the transfiguration. The seven biblical feasts of the Torah in Leviticus are ordained by God. These are said to be perpetual. They're not traditions of men. And when we look at them, and we look at the order in which they occur, we find something amazing. Yeshua died on the Feast of Passover, was put into the tomb on the Feast of Matzah, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and arose on the Feast of Bikrim, the Feast of First Fruits. Even more amazing, the Holy Spirit came to indwell humans on the Feast of Shavuot, which has become translated into English as Pentecost. These are not four coincidences. Rather, each feast is prophetic of a milestone of God's plan for redemption. It's obvious. Now, the next series of these prophetic feasts are Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then the final feast is Sukkot. All these are prophetic of the end times and the return of Messiah Yeshua to rule over His kingdom on earth. So, the first four feasts have already been fulfilled. What remains is for the final three to be fulfilled. Those three are ahead of us. They concern the end times. 
However, since all of Jewish society believed they were already in the end times, then it made sense to Peter that the fulfillment of the Feast of Sukkot was happening right before his eyes. So quite logically, what did he do? He said, hey, let's build three sukkahs. I'm going to build a sukkah, which is required for each one of you. You see how that fits together? Now the first part of verse 5 speaks of Yeshua, Moses, and Elijah becoming engulfed in a cloud. Now there can be little doubt that this cloud represents the Shekinah the glory of God. Notice that although the cloud surrounds the three figures, there are really four figures involved. The fourth one is God the Father. And the only one of these four figures to speak is God. And whenever God the Father is interacting in a close way with humans on earth, it's in within some sort of a shrouding element. The term cloud may simply be a means to communicate a mysterious shrouding element that's sort of like a cloud, but it isn't a typical cloud that floats about in the sky. What I'm saying is that we have to be careful with some of those terms because they they are more descriptive and figurative based upon known objects that humans are familiar with rather than upon what the actual substance of it might be. We should also keep in mind that this cloud not only shrouds God from view but also acts as, as a sort of a vehicle that carries Him in the same way that Daniel explains about the one like the Son of Man riding upon the cloud. Now these sorts of vivid God experiences involving clouds, they're few and far between in the Bible. Key for us is that it almost always involves Moses and Israel's exodus from Egypt. Exodus 16, verses 10 to 12. As Aaron spoke to the whole community of the people of Israel, they looked towards the desert, and there before them the glory of God appeared in the cloud. And Adonai said to Moshe, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel say to them at dusk, you'll be eating meat, and in the morning you'll have your fill of bread. Then you will realize that I am Adonai your God. Exodus 19, 9. Adonai said to Moses, see, I am coming to you in a thick cloud so that the people will be able to hear when I speak with you and also trust in you forever. Moses had told Adonai what the people had said. Exodus 24, 15 and 16, Moshe went up to the mountain and cloud covered the mountain. The glory of God stayed on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the cloud. We find such a relationship between God, cloud, the Shekinah, and Moses in the Apocrypha as well, in the book of Maccabees. 
Second Maccabees 2, starting at verse 7. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked him and declared, The place shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together and shows him shows his mercy. Then the Lord will disclose those things, and the glory of the, of the Lord and the cloud will appear. As they were shown in the case of Moses, and as Solomon asked, the place should be especially consecrated. The point is, that in addition to God coming down to sort of consecrate what is happening, such as consecrating the temple that Solomon built, we find that once again that Jesus as a second Moses connection is validated, and this simply cannot be emphasized enough. And further, when recalling the Mount Sinai incidents, both the burning bush and the giving of the law, we see that those who heard God's voice did, like Moses, fall flat on the ground in fear. And still as in the Moses-Mount Sinai incidents, Christ uses the words, don't be afraid. So we see some interesting nuances among the three gospel accounts of how the transfiguration played out provided we do it within the understanding of the Jewish culture of that day. Now, after the three disciples falling on their faces in fright and then daring to look up again, Mark reports that Elijah and Moses were gone, and apparently so was the cloud. Matthew reports the same. Luke is the most brief of them all and says that once Moses and Elijah were gone, the disciples left, and they didn't say a word about this strange appearance to anyone. Mark adds an intriguing tidbit in Mark 9.9, that Yeshua told the disciples not to say anything about what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. However, verse 10 says they didn't understand what Yeshua meant about this rising from the dead stuff. Back to Matthew's Gospel. In verse 10, the disciples ask their master why it is that their scribes say that Elijah must come first. In other words, why do their synagogue teachers teach a doctrine that has Elijah preceding the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of all things. That is, Jesus' teaching seems to be contradicting this. How can it be that Yeshua is saying that he must first die and then be resurrected before the before that restoration, therefore, before the coming of Elijah? How can that occur? See, for the disciples, Christ's teaching puts those two events of the appearance of Elijah and the appearance of Messiah out of order. And their synagogue scribes aren't necessarily wrong. Malachi chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Look, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with complete destruction. Look, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
becoming coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now the great, great and terrible day of the Lord, judgment day, is concurrent with the restoration of Israel. And the restoration of Israel is concurrent with the coming of the Messiah. So when we see that essentially Malachi says the same thing that the synagogues synagogue scribes are teaching, one can only imagine the confusion of the disciples when Yeshua says, eh, he must die and be resurrected first before the restoration occurs. To explain why what he is telling them about Elijah and about his own resurrection is so, he says to the disciples in verses 11 and 12, he answered, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But on the other hand, <laughs> I tell you, Elijah's already come. And people did not recognize him, but they did whatever pleased them to him. In the same way, the Son of Man, too, is about to suffer at their hands. So the idea is, Yeshua is telling the disciples a paradox about Elijah. The paradox is that although Elijah is indeed coming, and it will be in concert with the restoration of all things, primarily meaning the restoration of Israel as a righteous and great power, yet in another sense, says Yeshua, Elijah's already come. Jesus adds that the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of the people in the same way that Elijah, that has already come, did. And then verse 13 says that the disciples got it. That, according to Christ, that Elijah had already come and suffered at the hands of the people because he was John the Baptist. Let that one rattle around in your minds for a minute. Now please follow me on this carefully. Even though the disciples got it about John the Immerser, clearly they did not grasp it all. They accepted that Yeshua associated Elijah with John the Baptist. But in what sense would the disciples have understood that association? It was this. John the Baptist, as Elijah, would indeed precede the Messiah just as the prophecies in the synagogue scribes said, as we saw earlier in Matthew 16, 14. The Jews had no problem in believing that in some undefined way, the spirit or essence of a deceased person could live within another. So it wasn't a major leap for them to accept that the spirit of Elijah could have returned from heaven and taken up residence within the body of John the Baptist in a very real way, even if they couldn't explain it. And they were starting to accept that Yeshua was Messiah, the Restorer. But they were struggling terribly with the possibility that the restoration of Israel that they'd hoped was imminent was not going to happen just yet. It just wasn't going to happen right now. 
clearly they did not get it, and how could they have, that the restoration was going to be a centuries-long process that had only begun in the last few months since Yeshua's immersion. The restoration process, which is the establishment of the Kingdom of Heaven on earth, was only in its infancy. See, but while they could also not see or fathom, was the, the Elijah paradox automatically meant there must be two reappearances of Elijah as the precursor to the restoration of Israel. But then that meant that there wouldn't necessarily have to be two reappearances of the Restorer, because the Restorer is the Messiah. And if there were to be two appearances of Elijah and the Restorer, then there also had to be two latter days. And yet the end times, something with it, which the Jewish community believed to their core, that they were already living in, that was associated with the latter days, could only come after the second appearance of Elijah and the Restorer, because if the end times happened at the first latter days, which was the first appearance of Elijah and the Restorer, it would logically eliminate the need for a second appearance of the two. Confusing? Challenging to digest? You bet. But we all have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. We know all about Jesus' two appearances. We have the book of Revelation that provides more details. Can you imagine the difficulties for these disciples trying to make heads or tails out of this newest revelation? I mean, we have tons of facts. We have Bible history that they just didn't have because so much was in the future for them, it had not happened yet. This is why I advise believers to not be terribly anxious about what's in the future. Ahead of us, stuff that hadn't happened yet. Almost obsessing over trying to figure out the timing and the details about the end of days that's coming. Oh, if I get that email once, I get it five times a day. Can you give me the exact order all this is going to happen? Because I want to stock up on toilet paper. We have relatively little information in the Bible about the end times. And so much of what we do have seems paradoxical, like Yeshua's Elijah teaching, or it is simply so full of implications and generalities that aren't fleshed out that it's just not fully comprehensible. But just like any average believer can, with proper instruction, we can understand how the Old Testament prophecies came to pass in Jesus so you can understand some of what's going to happen in the end times. From the 30,000 foot view, but only so far as the information that is given to us in the Bible will carry us. Speculation about the terrifying, catastrophic, 
worldwide events of the end times that are foretold in the Bible might be fun and exciting to talk about, and even make writing and the selling of books about it profitable. But the likelihood is slim that much of what we conclude or what is said in these books is going to turn out to be correct. And like for the Jews of Yeshua's day, speculation and turning to man-made doctrines and opinions for answers, when the Bible offers little or none, is more likely to cause harm than to do good for God's congregation. I'm going to close out this narrative about the Transfiguration with just a couple of thoughts. First, despite long-held Christian tradition, the location of Mount Tabor as the place of the Transfiguration is all but impossible. See, during Yeshua's lifetime, Mount Tabor was a fortified Roman military outpost. Not a very likely place for this to happen. The Sanhedrin was also allowed to use this high mountain of Tabor as part of a, a matrix of hills upon which they would light signal fires to announce the sighting of the new moon, that is, announce the change to a new month. So Mount Tabor was not a remotely suitable place for this private mystical revelation that Christian tradition calls the Transfiguration. Second of all, we need to be aware that from this point forward, Peter and the brothers James and John must be considered as the best authorities and so likely the spiritual leaders outside of Yeshua himself of the Jesus movement as well as the experts concerning Christ's life and His teachings. It also means that immediately after Yeshua is executed, they will become the best and most trusted sources about His life and His teachings, and so they represent, those three represent, the first elders of the Jesus movement, whose job it is to keep the tradition about his life alive, about his life alive and safeguarded. Now, with that, we're going to leave the story of the Transfiguration, and next time we meet, we will move on to another scene in Matthew chapter 17.